for some great time of equipping and training in how to share our faith as believers. Right, I think those are all my announcements. And so with that, I want to turn our attention to the Word of God and to our sermon series that we've been in now for the last few weeks that we've entitled Foundations. Foundations as we look at Genesis 1 through 11 and the story of everything. And this afternoon, I bring us to Genesis chapters 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 as we think about the aftermath of the flood. Genesis chapters 8 and 9, and for our reading, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. So, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, like I said, we're going to do 8 and 9, but we'll just read this section here in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, and in this text, God is establishing His covenant with Noah, a covenant that has implications even for us. So, Genesis chapter 9, reading from verse 1 and going all the way down to verse 17. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 17. As is our custom here at Redeemer, we're going to read um, responsively, and so I will read the odd-numbered verses. I'll invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, and if you're able to do so, would you stand with me out of reverence for God's Word? Genesis chapter 9, then, beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 17. These are God's words. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If anyone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And the Lord said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, 
and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look to it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. Pray that God would grant us understanding and bless that reading of His Word. Let's pray together, ask for His help, and then we will dig into our passage for today. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the privilege of being able to open up Your Word and to hear You speak to us. We pray that as we spend a few moments digging into this portion of Your Word, as we think about who You are and how it is that You initiate relationship with sinful people, may our be encouraged, may our hearts be strengthened, may our hearts be challenged by what we hear. And Father, as I pray for us, I pray for Cornerstone Christian Church as they get ready for their evening service. Father, thank you for good relationships there with Pastor Quentin and the leadership there. Pray for them. Pray that you would bless their church, bless their time of gathering this evening. May the gospel be proclaimed. May Jesus be made much of. May those who gather be equipped and encouraged. Be with us now as we open up your word. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things out of your law. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. I've tagged our text for this afternoon. God's covenant with Noah. God's covenant with Noah. This is message number eight in our series, Foundations, as we're working our way through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so far, we've seen God create the heavens and the earth. We've seen the story of our first parents. We've seen the story of our descent into sin as a race. And in the last message, when we were in chapters 6 and 7, we saw the hammer of divine judgment fall, as it were, as God sent the cataclysm that we know as the flood. I alluded to this last time, and I didn't really get to touch it because we were in kind of a hurry. But the flood, if you remember me saying this last week, was an act of decreation. It was an act of decreation. God had created the world. He was pleased with what He created, Genesis 1.31. But then sin enters into the world. And by the time we come to Genesis chapter 6, human wickedness had reached such a peak that God says, I regret that I made man. And so He starts over. And that's what we see in the flood. The flood is an act of decreation. I love how R. Kent Hughes in his excellent commentary on Genesis, how he puts it. He says, quote, the rise of the Genesis flood was a divine act of decreation. At creation, God had made an expanse that he called sky to separate the watery chaos into waters above the sky and under the sky. But the flood acted to effect a reversal of creation when all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the winds of the heavens were opened. 
engulfing the earth again in a wild, watery chaos. The watery violence continued for 40 days as water raged from fissures in the seabed and heaven's cataracts, while the rolling ark rolled the dark valleys and steeps of the watery death like a gigantic sealed coffin. And that's kind of what we parked the Bible bus on our excursion last time, as it were, with the flood in full effect. And as we come to Genesis chapter 8, uh, what we're coming to as we arrive here is really a front row seat to the aftermath of the flood. If the flood was an act of decreation, if the flood was God, as it were, bringing an end to creation 1.0, if you will, Well, what we're about to see in Genesis chapters 8 and 9 is God bringing about recreation, as it were, bringing about creation 2.0, if you will. And as we come to this passage in the Word of God, I think there's one central truth that emerges from this text as you see God's conversation with Noah in chapter 8, the covenant in chapter 9, verses 1 through 17 that we just read. As you read this, read this text, it becomes apparent that there's one central truth that Moses, as the author of this, would have us to understand. There's a truth that would have comforted God's covenant people in the wilderness as they heard this for the first time, and a truth that should comfort us as God's people, even as we live in a fallen world. Simply put, it's the truth that God cares for the preservation and the provision of life and creation, both physically and spiritually. Let me say that again. God cares for the preservation and the provision of life and creation, both physically and spiritually. As you read this passage, God's care for His creation, God's concern for His creation becomes very, very apparent. And I don't think it's much of an argument to say that Moses, as the author of this, places this here in his very well-put-together narrative to show that just as God saw the wickedness of man and brought about decreation, so God sees man and he's able to bring about a recreation as he cares for his creation. And I'm going to say that this afternoon, this truth is beautifully expressed in four scenes, if you will. Four scenes in the aftermath of the flood leading up to God's covenant with Noah. There are four scenes to this story, as it were. And so I just want you to just for a few moments march along with me as we walk our way through this narrative. And we see these four scenes in the aftermath of the flood that lead up to God's covenant with Noah. Scene one, we can call godly patience in the face of life. Godly patience in the face of life, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 8. Godly patience in the face of life. Well, the first scene of our text begins simply enough, so look at verse 1 again with me. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. So just as we saw a picture, remember we said last week that when we see this language of God regretting or repenting or, 
as we see here, remembering that these are the Bible's way of explaining to us the actions of God in ways that we as human beings who are limited can understand. Well, if human language is being used here to describe divine actions, I put it to you that far from teaching us that God is prone to forgetfulness the way that you and I are prone to forgetfulness, when the Bible speaks of God's remembering, it's a way of communicating to us who are bound in time and space, who have a very limited frame of reference for how the world works. It's a way of communicating to us that God's intention to act has now come to the forefront. In fact, this language is used of God remembering in the context of the Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, then God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Exodus 6, 5. This is now God speaking to Moses. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God speaks to us in this way to help us understand that the time for fulfillment had come. God had promised to bring about His purpose for Noah and the rest of creation, and now God was going to bring that about. In verses 2 and 3, we have the reverse of what God did in chapter 7, verse 11. So, do you remember in 7:11 it tells us that the... Let me not quote it. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. We come to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8, and now we have the reverse of this. So verse 2 the sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. Here begins the great work of God in bringing about this recreation. And Moses is going to tell us this story and he's going to do it in a way that takes great care to explain not just the events, but the details of these events. So stage one of this recreation spans almost three months. We get that from verses four and five. The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. The water continued to recede until the 10th month. In the 10th month, so three months have passed, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were visible. All that is stage one. Stage two starts in verse six. Noah is patient and believing, but it's interesting that Noah's patience and faith don't lead him to inaction. So look at verses six through nine with me. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent out a raven. It went back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But the flood found no resting place for its, the dove, excuse me, found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. 
So here's Noah, he's sending out this couple of birds. And put yourself in his position for a moment as he does this. Here's Noah. It's 150 days since the catechism of the flood. The water has slowly started to recede. You can start to see the tops of the mountains. Uh, again, just put yourself in his position for a moment. Uh, I can't speak for you, but as somebody who flies a great deal, I probably don't think I've ever publicly admitted this, but I get cabin fever very easily. Uh, after about two hours, I'm done. Like, please, can we like park for a second and come out the plane? Like, I, I can only be cooped up so long. But unlike me, who is tired of being cooped up after a couple of hours, Noah demonstrates incredible patience. Um, he demonstrates patience even when the results are less than desirable. He sends out both birds, and both birds come back. They've not found a resting place. Thankfully, patience is rewarded with good news. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. So Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. By the way, you ever wonder where people talk about extending an olive branch? Part of it starts with this picture. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. Verse 12, after he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again which indicates that, oh, there's enough of a place for the bird to rest, that it started nesting. It's found a nesting place. Now, as you look at these two stages of recreation, as it were, in verses 1 through 12, as Moses writes these inspired words, he's very intentional in building a parallel with how this started and how this ends. In fact, to kind of demonstrate this, I put this in a sort of diagram format that you can see up on screen there. So you have seven days of waiting for the flood in chapter 7 and verse 4. You then have another seven days of waiting in chapter 7 and verse 10. Then you have the 40 initial days of flood in 717. That's followed by 150 days of the waters rising in 724. But then when we come to chapter 8 verse 3, 150 days are mentioned again. It's not another 150. It's the same one. But now it's mentioned, but instead of talking about the waters rising, it's about the waters receding. The number 40 comes up again in chapter 8, verse 6. You have another seven days of waiting in chapter 8, verse 10. And then the final seven days of waiting in 8, 12. So even in the way that this is structured, it's meant to show you that, okay, there was this act of decreation, it kind of hits its peak in this 150-day period, and now there is recreation. It, how it started mirrors how it went. I, I labor this point. I usually don't put technical details like this too much in sermons, but I, I labor this point because I want you to grasp that as you're reading Genesis, Genesis is very intelligent in how it puts things together. That this is not, as some atheists would like to claim, just some goat herder on the back of the wilderness who didn't know the first thing about anything. That actually when we read the Bible, especially when we read the Old Testament, there is evidence of strategy, there is evidence of concept, of intelligence in writing. Now, of course, we should expect that because as Christians, we also believe that these are divinely inspired writings. 
And so there was an intentional design to the way that all of this is put together. Well, the text kind of fast forwards in verse 13. So verse 13, look at it with me. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. You put all the numbers together in Genesis chapter 6 right through to where we are here in chapter 8. And it's been one year and 11 days. They had been on the ark for a year and 11 days. And what's fascinating is as you read this narrative, that's why I tagged this first scene, godly patience in the face of life. Do you know that from Noah you don't hear a word of complaint? You don't hear him grumble? Let's be clear, Noah's not a perfect man. If you read Noah and think of him as some sort of perfect hero, um, but wait till we get to next week's, well, not next week, but the following week in chapter 9, Noah is far from perfect. But I do think that we can learn something from the patience of Noah in this narrative. All he does is to trust and to wait. He knew that God had promised to bring him and his family out of the flood, but we never hear once complain, Lord, it's too long. Like, I'm on a boat with animals, lots and lots of animals. I'm cooped up with the same seven people for a year. You never hear him complain. Most of us would most of us couldn't cope that long. Uh, my family back in London, um, the lockdowns were pretty severe. And so they were basically cooped up together for weeks at a time. And every so often I'd call to check in and see that they were okay. And it was fascinating to me to hear just how much everybody was at everybody's throats. Like, even my mom, who loves my dad dearly, was like, that is driving me crazy. I need to get out. But you don't see that from Noah, do you? All Noah does is to trust, to simply take God at his word and to believe, to rest in his promise. That's why the author to the Hebrews could say in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, by faith Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but sometimes my lack of patience is very obvious. In fact, who am I kidding? Not sometimes. Every day, my lack of patience is obvious. And as I read this narrative, I'm thankful for the grace of God that works even on me, just as it works on all of us, bringing us more and more into conformity to the kind of patience that we see here. Well, I'm not labor this point too long. Scene one, we see godly patience in the face of life. Secondly, scene two, this one I labeled God's provision for new life. God's provision for new life in verses 15 through to 22. Now that the water has subsided, God gives the all clear. So verse 15, 
Then God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that call on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. It's interesting. God hasn't said it. If you read chapter 7, God doesn't say a whole bunch. Like, he kind of just leaves Noah to it, as it were. But now the word of God comes again. And God comes with good news. You can leave the ark now. And what's Noah's response? He doesn't argue. Doesn't pitch a fit. Doesn't say, God, seriously, a year and 11 days. Could we not have expedited this process a little bit? You don't see any of that. Verse 18, so Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark by their families. This may seem like a really obvious statement. Well, of course they came out of the ark. But again, this isn't here just to fill space. As one commentator notes, what you have here when he uses this language of coming out by their families... It's the same term that's used for human families. That's why our translation translates it as families. It doesn't just say they come out by their kinds. No, in this time that they've been on the ark, there's a sense in which the, there's been a growth that the animals they went in with aren't quite the animals they came out with. And so here they come in their families, and they come out of the ark. They go and they spread out on the earth just as God said they should. Can, can, can you see why some people, like myself, would view this as a recreation? That God has started over again. Not just with human life, but even with animal life. The scene comes to a climax in verses 20 through 22, and I would argue that what you see here in 20 through 22 is some of the most worshipful language in all the Scripture. So look with me at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. In light of God's preservation and in gratitude for His mercy, God, excuse me, Noah, excuse me, offers up a sacrifice unto the Lord. As I was reading this, I had to kind of pause and invite you to take a pit stop with me for a moment. It's easy to think that, and trust me, I deal with people regularly who think this, that, well, because my salvation is all of grace, because God has done everything needed for my salvation, which is 100% true. We don't want to deny any of that. But it's easy to think as a result of that, I don't have to do anything. And while I believe in the grace of God without the mingling of any works, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace are you saved by faith, and that not of works. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that, anyone, so that no one may boast. Just in case you're confused, there are no works involved in salvation. While I believe that and I affirm that, I also believe in the grace of God that produces gratitude in the hearts of those who've experienced it. I don't think it's by accident that the minute he comes out the ark, the text seems to supply a level of immediacy here, that no sooner has he come out of the ark than he's thinking about worship. I think there's an element to which he had experienced grace, and now grace had given way to gratitude. It's not surprising we read this in Scripture. 
Ephesians chapter 2 that I just quoted, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2. It says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Here is the grace of God that appears, and the grace of God leads us to lives of gratitude. It's not, I do good works and then I earn from God. That's not how God's economy works, brothers and sisters. But those who experience grace in turn lead lives of gratitude. Grace always elicits that heartfelt response of gratitude, and that's what we see in Noah as he offers up the sacrifice to the Lord. Not only this, but did you catch the text says that he offered up burnt offerings? Burnt offerings in the Bible are the offerings of total devotion. It's the offering of propitiation. It's the offering, Leviticus 1 4 says, of acceptance before the Lord. As he offers up these offerings, I think that Moses is putting Noah in the position of being a mediator. That just like Adam was a covenant head, a covenant mediator, now Noah is functioning like that. That his act of worship is not just for himself but it's on behalf of the creation that he's now going to be the first father of. And I get that from how God responds to this. So verse 21, verse 21, it says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. It's fascinating. Our English translations struggle with how to put this. But in the original language, there's a play on words here in verse 21, uh, where it says there, uh, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Uh, that word pleasing is the same root word, or has the same root word as Noah's name, which means rest. The, the aroma of rest, as it were. The idea of God smelling the aroma, again, it's a human way of explaining what's happening with God, is that God is pleased with this show of gratitude from Noah. That as Noah has demonstrated rest and gratitude for grace, God is pleased and he receives this gratitude. And so he speaks. Now, remember I said that Noah wasn't a perfect person? Here's one implication of this. Verse 21, he says... I'm not going to curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Even in a somewhat new creation, a renovated creation, we'll go with that. Even in a renovated creation, the human heart is still the same. And the eight human hearts that went onto the ark carried the same problem. Though man is sinful, God will not curse the ground like he did in the fall. That was punishment enough. In fact, in his mercy and grace, he promises to preserve the earth. A global flood will never happen in God's providence. Once again, the earth and its rhythms, did you catch that in verse 22? Sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Those rhythms that sustain the earth, allow the earth to continue, they will indeed continue. 
That kind of segues us into our third scene this afternoon as we look at this text. We've seen godly patience in the face of life. We've seen God's provision of new life. Thirdly, let's talk about God's order of new life. God's order of new life, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. As we enter into a new creation, there needs to be a new system of things. There needs to be a new way of operating. First off, we note that God blesses Noah just like He blessed Adam and Eve. Chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But this blessing doesn't ignore the fact that we're living in a fallen world. Remember, when God made that promise in Genesis 1, this was in the absence of a fallen world. So look at verse 2. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Oh, that language of fear and terror, that's new. Uh, that, that, that wasn't there to begin with. Did you also catch what was missing? Think about this. Compare the, If you've got a Bible, you can be quick. Flick back to Genesis 1, look at that. What's missing here? I'll give you a moment. What's missing here in comparison, in J- chapter 9, what's missing here in chapter 9 from Genesis 1, 26 to 28? Did you notice that the language of rule and dominion is missing? As I was studying this week, because that, that caught my attention. I was like, what on earth? Why is that missing? That's kind of important, isn't it? And I noticed across the theological board, Scholar after scholar after scholar noted the same thing. As one of them put it, quote, the new circumstances of a sin-burdened world have radically altered this aspect of the blessing with Adam. That though God is merciful and still says, yes, be fruitful and multiply, there has been something of a forfeiture of that command to rule and have dominion over creation. But here's where it gets interesting. Keep something here. Turn me to Hebrews chapter 2. Let me show you something in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews in the second chapter. Begin with me in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. All to the Hebrews says, For he has not, referring to God the Father, he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, and he quotes Psalm 8, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. Now, look at what he says. This is his explanation. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about expository preaching. People say there's no exposition in the Bible. Here's an example. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. As it stands, because of the fall, the command to rule and have dominion over the earth was forfeited by Adam. And so as it stands, he doesn't have that. But look at what the author to the Hebrews does tell us. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus, 
made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Because Jesus suffered death, the penalty that was rightfully owed for sin. Part of his exaltation is that he now gets to fulfill this mandate where fallen creatures could not. And so even though, come back with me to Genesis chapter 9, even though this mandate is missing from our text, it's not missing because no man will ever rule the earth, but simply because the one who will rule the earth had not come yet. With creation now out of order morally and spiritually, God has it where it has to put a boundary to ensure that man will not find himself overrun by the creation. That's why he has to say the fear and terror of you will be on every living creature. And even then in a fallen world, we know that not every living creature is terrified of humans. Another aspect of this new order of life is a change in diet. Can I draw your attention to verses 3 and 4? This is three and four. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with his lifeblood in it. Now, I don't know about you, but I like verses like these. I have often joked, and I've gotten in trouble for saying it, but it's the truth. I'm a city guy. I think nature is great. Preferably when it's dead and on a plate. God, as it were, opens the menu up. He says, yeah, you, I gave you the green plants, but guess what? Now I'm giving you everything. But before you get excited about that, like I do, why is that the case now? What was missing at the original creation that's now present in the world? There's death. There was no death prior to the fall. So, for those of you like me who, enjoys, who enjoy eating meat, the next time you enjoy some meat, enjoy it. But remember why it's here. It's a testimony to the fact that we live in a world that has fallen. Now, death is part of the order of things. And again, we're dealing with fallen human beings, so God has to put a boundary on this. You see that there in verse 4? However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Kenneth Matthews in his excellent commentary on Genesis notes that animal life, though given to humanity for sustenance, remained valuable in the eyes of God as a living creature and therefore merited proper care, not wanton abuse. You get to verses 5 and 6, and God enshrines a principle that is probably one of the most controversial in all of human history. So verse 5 and 6. So having talked about the lifeblood of animals, he then says, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Verse 6, whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans, literally God made man in his image. I'm going to make a statement that in some sectors may get me canceled, but I'm in church, I should be okay. Here it goes. 
while all life is valuable, in the economy of God, not all life is equally valuable. Let me say that again. While all life is valuable, in the economy of God, in the structuring of God, not all life is equally valuable. God makes it clear in these two verses that human life, symbolized by its lifeblood, holds priority over all other life. That's why God says, did you see it there in verse 6? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed, for God made man in his image. This is an idea that our culture seems to have just lost all sight of. Just this week, I was following the news back home in the UK, and I saw a group called Extinction Rebellion. If you've never heard of them, count yourselves lucky. As the name suggests, they are kind of an eco-warrior group. And they decided to walk up to a number of prominent buildings in London in the last week and start throwing bombs of oil at these buildings. Not actual bombs, but just literally like balloons filled with oil staining these buildings. Why? To protest the destruction of the earth and the destruction of animal life. No, I do think we should be good stewards of the earth. I do think that earth care is important. In fact, Revelation chapter 15, God says that he will destroy those who destroy the earth. So I do think we should take care of the planet. However, I couldn't help but think I was watching this. They're in uproar about plants and animals. Never mind the millions of babies the UK has legally murdered since the Abortion Act in the UK was enshrined in law in 1968. It was written in 1967. Make it make sense to me that there is more concern about polar bears and ice caps than innocent babies. And I'd like to say this because the UK is just completely morally adept, but guess what? That's the same in this country too. It's the same across the West. R.C. Sproul in his excellent little book in, on abortion, I recommended it in this week's study guide, uh, R.C. Sproul in his excellent book on abortion puts it like this with only the kind of ease that R.C. Sproul could do it. He said, quote, an offense against a human is more outrageous than an offense against a rat. So think about it. Rat. It's a living creature. Not our favorite living creature, but it's a living creature nonetheless. And a human being. Dr. Sproul continues, both the rat and the human are creatures created by God. None of us would deny that. But the office of a person is considerably higher than the office of the rat. It is mankind, not the rat, who is made in the image of God. It is the human who is given a role of dominion over the earth. Man, not the rat, is God's vice-regent over creation. And so God enshrines this principle that says, because of the value of human life, when human life is taken, the life that takes that life needs to be taken. Kofi, are you saying you are pro the death penalty? Kind of. I do think it should be exercised justly. I think even in the Old Testament, you see God puts provisions in place. You don't just kill someone wantonly. 
But God does enshrine a principle in his word that says human life is of such value that when human life is taken, that life needs to be taken. And I'll be honest, brothers and sisters, as I, as I read this text, it scared me for a moment because I thought, what on earth is God going to do to our nations in the West where we kill babies with impunity? I forget what the number is in the U.S., but the number in the U.K. is scarred into my mind. 208,000 babies a month. Can I put it to you that a culture of death, a culture that celebrates death, and think about this, again, I try not to get political or social in the pulpit, but bear with me for a moment. A culture that says at the beginning of life, we should have the right to terminate life. And a culture that says at the end of life, we should have the right to terminate life. Isn't it funny that our culture, in both directions, is quite happy with the termination of life at will? Isn't it our state that has some of the loosest laws on euthanasia in the entire union? A culture of death, a culture that celebrates death. Make it make sense to me, brothers and sisters. How is it that people can march in celebration of abortion, the wanton murder of innocent babies, and they celebrate it? Comedians will crack jokes about it. Since I'm already in trouble, and we are live streaming this service, I'm sure YouTube will kick me off or something. Might as well get myself all in trouble. Make it make sense to me that we get upset about the murder of people in the street by the police, but somehow we think the murder of babies who did nothing wrong is perfectly okay. Make it make sense to me. A culture of death comes from the evil one. That doesn't come from God. No, you could argue that God is the one who institutes the culture of life. He says, be fruitful and multiply, and he seeks to protect human life. That's his gift, even in a fallen world. So much more I'd like to say, but I should probably leave that subject alone. We've seen godly patience in the face of life. We've seen God's provision of new life. We see God's order of life. Finally, we see God's promise of life. Verses 8 through 17. God's promise of life. This is the actual covenant that God makes with Noah. These are the formal terms, as it were. Now, Normally, I would go into a deep dive about what a covenant is and how it all works, but in the interest of time, I've actually done that before. If you go back to those of you who were here, you may remember this from our Holy Spirit series. If you weren't here on our YouTube channel, message number three of our series, Spirit and Truth, where we looked at the personal work of the Holy Spirit, I take some time and I answer the question, what is a covenant? What are the covenants in the Bible? I will refer you to that summary because of the interest of time. But for now, let's focus on the covenant at hand. The covenant that's at hand here, verses 8 through 17. Theologians call this the Noahic covenant, or the covenant with Noah. Simply put, the Noahic covenant made by God with Noah, his seed, and all of creation, enables the fulfillment of God's original purposes for man and creation by establishing a stable world in which to work out the plan of redemption. Let me say that again. The Noahic covenant made, with God, made, with, made by God with Noah, his seed, and all creation enables the fulfillment of God's original purposes for man and creation by establishing a stable world. 
in which to work out the plan of redemption. In other words, God, as we're about to see in the closeout of this text, God establishes a covenant whereby he ensures that there will be a world that remains stable, that exists, so that the plan of redemption can be fully brought to fulfillment. Let's look at the details of this. Verses 8 through 10. So verse 8, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. This covenant is unique in that it's the only covenant that God makes with humans and animals. It's the only one. All the rest of the covenants that God makes in the Bible, he makes with people. But this one he makes not just with people, but with all of creation. All of creation is in view here. Adam is, excuse me, not Adam. Noah, functioning as a new Adam, is the primary mediator. But this covenant is made with all of creation. In verse 11, God commits to never flood the earth in the same way again. This is not a statement that says there will never be floods again, or a statement that there will never be a judgment again. God simply says he's not going to bring about a judgment like this again. Just as God committed himself to the original creation, now he commits himself to this new creation. And really, that's, what, that's what's at the heart of covenant. As Arkin Hughes puts it, the covenant is the self-motivated promise of an unconditional mercy in time and space. The covenant is the self-motivated motivated promise of an unconditional mercy in time and space. That's what's at the heart of covenant. Covenant is God committing himself to relationship with sinful people. We'll see this in, well, in the fall when we get to Genesis 12 through 25. Genesis chapter 17, God speaks to Abraham and he says, I, confirm, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession. And I will be their God. That's really what's at the heart of covenant. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And think about this. For the original audience, who themselves were the recipients of a covenant with God, can you see how this would be comforting? Can you see how God entering into relationship with sinful people by grace, how that would be comforting even for them? Can I take it a step further? Can you see how that would be comforting for you? Hasn't God entered into a covenant with us in Christ? Uh, hasn't God promised us not just a vague amnesty of cosmic proportions, but a living and vital relationship with us despite our sins. Hasn't God done that for us? He has, hasn't he? 
The final facet of this covenant takes the form of a sign in verses 12 through 17. So 12 through 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth whenever I form clouds over the earth. So as you see the sign of rain, don't get And the bow appears in the clouds. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth earth. Sure, the, the text could have ended in verse 11 and been perfectly fine. Do, do, you, do, you, do you catch that? God has given his word. It's good. God doesn't tell lies. But God is gracious in that he goes one step further. He doesn't just speak, but he gives a tangible sign and seal of this covenant. He takes the rainbow in the sky, and by the way, some people say, well, this is where the rainbow comes from. No, the text didn't say that. The text actually says, I place my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign. It seems to imply that God has already done this, but now, when you see this, this should remind you of this covenant. He takes the rainbow in the sky and he makes it to act as a sign of his covenant promise not to destroy the earth again. You look up in the sky after it rains and you see the rainbow, you are supposed to see that the promise is still in effect. As I conclude, this is, how, this is why this is important for us. That's important for us because one of the great elements that gives assurance to us in our relationship with God is that God gives to us signs and seals for the strengthening of our faith. Calvin in his commentary says that a sign is added to the promise in which is exhibited the wonderful kindness of God, who for the purpose of confirming our faith in his word does not disdain to use such helps to act as a reminder to all parties that God will honor his word. These signs and seals, if you really think about them, they're a grace from God in themselves. And here's the point of connection for us as we close. The covenant with Noah was a covenant that came, think, of this, think through this with me for a moment. The covenant with Noah was a covenant that came after an act of judgment which saved the human parties that were involved in this covenant. I talked about the covenant that we are in. The Bible calls that the new covenant. The new covenant is a covenant that's established after an act of judgment, which saves all who are in it. And the new covenant that we're a part of comes with visible signs and seals too. We've talked about this. So draw your attention back to our simple church series. God gives to us the sign and seal of baptism, which speaks to our union with Christ, who, though baptism doesn't save, it pictures the fact that Christ went through the baptism of death for us and rose to newness of life. 
He gives to us the Lord's table that we're about to celebrate in just a few moments, which speaks to the precious gifts of His body that was broken for us and His blood that was shed for us, that we can have actual participation in Him. That's why the, uh, our fathers in the faith could say that, as surely as I eat this bread and I drink this cup, I know that Christ's blood is broken for me and His blood has been shed for me. But most important of all, He gives to us the sign and the seal of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. It's funny, that's how the Bible calls Him. It calls Him a seal. Interesting. That He indwells us, working in us the graces of those who belong to God. And that He's working in us assurance that one day, as God's children, God will fulfill every last one of His great and precious promises to us. And so we might not be Noah. We might not have had to live in an ark for too long. And we might not be dealing with a recreation of the physical world as we know it. But God is gracious to us to give us signs and seals of his covenant promise to us, just as he does to Noah. And he does so solely on the basis of his grace. And Father, we are so grateful to you that you are so merciful to us. That even in giving us the promise of your word, not only do you give us the promise of your word, but you give us the promise or the sign and the seal of that promise. And you give us so many of them. You give us the Lord's table. You give us baptism. You give us the precious Holy Spirit who lives within. Father, may we grow in our trust and our reliance and our resting in and our receiving of the promise that you have made with us. Father, though we are not Noah, we would pray that we would learn from the patience of Noah in the face of the flood. Father, help us to rest and rely on you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we come to our time of communion as we partake of the Lord's table. And as I just said a few moments ago, one of the great functions of this table is that